0: I'm Abby Disney, and you're listening to All Ears. When we started this podcast in April, we were focusing on economic inequality. But inequality is not always just about economics. We all watched a public lynching. And it seemed important to focus directly on race and racial injustice. So as the nation's streets have filled with protests, we decided to switch gears a bit. For the remainder of the season, I'm using my platform to talk with some amazing thinkers and movement leaders about how we got here and how we should move forward. My guest today is a longtime activist, a commentator, and peacebuilder. He's been fighting police violence and systemic racism since before many of today's protesters were born. He has contributed to advance the green economy, to address criminal justice reform, and has been working since long before 2016 election to heal the wounds polarizing the country. I count Van Jones as a friend, I am proud to say. He's helped me navigate some morally complex issues. I think I trust him because he has a very rare capacity to sit with discomfort, um, the discomfort that conflict brings, and is willing to see past political tribalism, which is a real strength. Many of people know him as a CNN contributor and host, but he's also a New York Times bestselling author and the CEO of Reform Alliance, a criminal justice reform advocacy organization. So welcome, Van Jones.
1: Oh, it's good to be here. And we are friends. I think we have the same qualities that you are praising in me. And I think that's why we get along so well.
0: Yeah, I, I, I do count you as a fellow traveler. So you said something sort of famous on the night of the election in 2016, when you called the result of the election white lash. Mm-hmm. But now, amazingly, 60% of white Americans support Black Lives Matter. How do you, how do, how do you explain the speed of this transformation
1: well you know it's been building up for a long time it's like a dam that breaks people are sitting around at home and they couldn't avoid social media they're trapped because of covid and the shutdown and then you show a lynching and this was a lynching it was a white man strangling a black man to death in plain view with no remorse Mm -hmm. with the support of law enforcement and the community appalled and screaming you're killing him you're killing him it was eight minutes and 46 seconds you have to watch the whole thing we've been lynched in this country for 400 years there's a memorial to lynching. So many of us have been lynched. That's not new. And it's been filmed before. But yeah. I think the difference was the length of this video, the fact that he was not fighting back in any way, that he was even dying was was polite, just saying, I can't breathe. And, and he was still murdered in that way. I think shocked people. And it's very similar. You know, Emmett Till, mm-hmm. the picture of Emmett Till, that the young boy who was lynched in the 50s, uh, the pictures of the dogs being sicked on children in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, images. And, and and video can move a nation, and it did.
0: Right, right. So I wanted to take some time to kind of like just walk people through your biography because I think people who see you on CNN don't really understand the enormity and the length of time you've been working on all just very issues we're focused on right now. Maybe what we should do is just start with how did you find out about Rodney King and how did you come into relationship with the whole case involving Ron King.
1: I was a, a student at Yale Law School. I don't remember when I first saw the video. I must have been in one of the dorms. But I'll never forget where I was when I found out that the four white LAPD officers, Los Angeles Police Department officers, who had beaten him so mercilessly on video, had been acquitted. That was, I guess, April 29th, 1992. I was working as an intern in San Francisco at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and um it was a shock uh to me and to, to others because at that time a videotape itself was a rarity. I mean <laughs> it wasn't like now where everybody's got them. Yeah. If somebody had a video camera that was kind of weird, you know, maybe break it out for your family barbecues or something. Um so the fact that somebody had a private video camera and then taking it out to film police doing stuff that they had up until that point been able to do pretty much away from public scrutiny, we thought was going to change everything.
0: Mm-hmm. And not
1: only did it not change everything, a jury gave it a stamp of approval. So that, that changed my life. I went from being a civil rights oriented law student, certainly very progressive, but inside the four corners of mainstream politics mm-hmm. to the left side of Pluto. I went as far left as you can possibly go, mm-hmm. and would have gone farther if I could have figured out how to. In terms of just being anti-capitalism, anti-the system, because I felt that I had been lied to. Like frankly, a lot of these young people out here on these streets today are going to tell you the same thing ten years from now. That you know, you're told that there's liberty and justice for all here, and then you suddenly see a counterexample, and it put me on a on a long long path way of left politics that you know probably lasted for 15 years after that.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you grow up thinking or talking about race?
1: Yeah, listen, I mean, if you're African-American, you're talking about and thinking about race all the time because uh, you live in a society that's mostly white. I'm a ninth generation American. I'm the first person in my family who was born with all my rights recognized by this government. And when people like really think about that, like, what would that mean if you lived in a country for nine generations and between slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, beatings, lynching, sharecropping, everything in between you were the first person in your family that was born with at least on paper your rights being recognized people always say well why don't you guys just quit talking about race I mean, that was a thousand years ago i'm sorry my mother and my father were born under the terror of jim crow segregation and i call it terror because it wasn't just oh you can't sit in the back of the bus it's that you could be killed at any moment for any reason or no reason at all you know you know terrorism didn't come to america with 9-11 i mean terrorism has been here for a long time so yes, I did grow up thinking about and talking a lot about civil rights, all that stuff. And maybe maybe being born in 1968 when Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King were killed, I decided in my own heart, I wanted to do something about it.
0: Can, can you be more specific about what you mean of, about going left of Pluto?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I moved to the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I lived in berserkly California. Every kind of ideology, you know, socialism, anarchism, Feminism, every kind of ism you can find is there, and I tried them all. Some people experiment with drugs. I experimented with radical ideologies. I, I eventually, when I became a father in my 30s, I began to kind of synthesize a little bit more of all the things I had, had come to know. And mm-hmm. I began to see, as disillusioned as I had been with the establishment, I was becoming disillusioned with the counter-establishment. Um, and the kind of negative energy, the addiction to outrage that comes along with that. And I had to look for a different way.
0: Mm-hmm. Where did you kind of start to find yourself landing?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I, I started an organization to take on police abuse, to take on uh, youth violence, to take on juvenile justice. It's called the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in California. started that in 1996 when I was just a couple of years out of law school. That organization still exists in Oakland, California, a very successful justice organization there locally. Um, And we closed five abusive youth uh, prisons in the early 2000s. We helped to reform the San Francisco Police Department. We stopped them from building the super jail for youth. This is in the early 2000s, 1990s, when both political parties, Democrat and Republican, were pro-mass incarceration. I think people forget Democrats, you know, Bill Clinton, uh, Willie Brown, Jerry Brown, all of the people that we love and respect were a part of the consensus that being a liberal in the 1990s meant you were progressive on every issue from the environment on down except you were going to be tough on crime. Except you are going to be pro 100,000 more cops as Bill Clinton, you know, talked yeah. about that yeah. that you purchased the right to be progressive. As a democrat by being regressive on criminal justice issues for 20 years and so i came up uh, at a time where uh, you had to be outside the democratic party and the republican party to be sticking up for people behind bars and so to win police accountability and fight prisons meant I was outside of the consensus.
0: Right, right. Well, and they were tough on welfare too. That's the other thing that held together, what they called the left in those days. And uh, there's one issue that links those two elements together, and that's race. So the super predator narrative emerged.
1: Sure. I mean, the, the crazy thing is that when I went to Yale, I saw all kind of behavior from from drug abuse, to rule breaking, and it was all called people are experimenting with drugs, they're being mischievous, they're testing their boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. A few blocks away in the housing projects, and you've been in New Haven, you know how close the housing projects are, are to Yale's campus, kids doing the same behavior. They weren't experimenting with drugs, they were called drug dealers. Mm-hmm. They weren't called mischievous, they were called gang members. The, the cops never went to the frat house to say, listen, you guys are a, a criminal drug gang. You're all going to prison. But a few blocks away, kids doing the exact same behavior were called criminal drug gangs. And they would do 10, 20, 30 years. Sometimes for doing fewer drugs. So they had less money than the kids within eyesight. Uh, you never get over that. Yeah. I think that where I began to come back to a position that's more familiar to a C- CNN viewer is I became a dad.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I became a dad, I went from, you know, F the system to fix the system because suddenly I realized, you know, if, if you burn it all down, what's going to happen to my kid at the time I was living in Oakland? How can I make sure that Oakland is a great place for my kid? I suddenly got a lot more pragmatic. And I also began to realize for myself, you know, in looking for funding for my not-for-profit organization, I started coming across wealthy white business owners who were just as passionate about justice as most of the people in the communities that I was working. And that threw my whole theory off because if it's, if it's kind of like the, the masses versus like the white capitalists, and I'm meeting white capitalists who are putting more money and effort and, and, and uh, expertise towards solving some of these problems, especially environmental problems and other problems than the average person I went to high school with, there's something wrong with my theory. And so I started realizing that I felt much more comfortable and I felt much more honest saying I was fighting against the worst in terms of, of corporate America, but I could, I could align myself with the best. I mean, those people who were trying to do triple bottom line, you know positive for the environment, positive for profit, but also positive for people, I could align myself with some of those folks. And so suddenly, rather than being 100% against everything, I began to, th- to think, where can I find common ground and where can I not? And where there's a battleground, I'm going to fight hard. But whether I can find common ground with was, was a business leader or a political leader, um, or even someone in law enforcement uh, who wants to do better, let me figure out a way if I can work with them. Rather than, you know, throwing everybody in the same bucket.
0: You know, the thing about common ground that's interesting is that if you choose to go stand on it with somebody who might be your enemy or someone you don't get along with, if you just go choose to stand on that common ground, by virtue of you standing there, it tends to grow. I remember when you went out and started doing the messy truth before the election in 2016. It was really remarkable to watch you sit there in people's living rooms and talk to them about voting for a person who many people um, had just written off as a racist, but you went there with love in your heart to help help people understand what was happening.
1: I grew up in the rural South. I really understood white poverty. I saw it in my elementary school, poor white kids who, you know, had a lot of problems, especially in the elementary school. And I was, because both my parents were married and, and by that time both my parents were were educators I was better off than they were and so when I got to the white house in addition to all the stuff that you know I went there to do you know trying to get clean energy jobs into the hood so called I also had a, a a project to try to get money into Appalachia the last time I went to jail I wasn't marching with black lives matter the last time I went to jail I was marching with coal miners trying to get them their pension and their health care back after the coal companies stole all that stuff from them. So I've always uh, felt in my heart that, at least among the folks at the bottom, the folks in the hood, the folks on Native American reservations, the folks in in Appalachia, that we have a lot more in common than we know and than we acknowledge. So it wasn't weird for me personally to go into, you know, a red part of Pennsylvania and sit down and talk to people who were going to vote for Donald Trump.
0: So so, what do you say to the people who say, but, you know, why isn't the racism a deal breaker? What do you say to that?
1: Well, look, it's, it's a big country and people prioritize stuff differently. I think uh, even his strongest supporters will grimace and, and flinch at some of Trump's rhetoric. I, I see Trump more as a racial opportunist than a racist. I think Trump is a Trump supremacist more than he's any other kind of supremacist. I think in some ways a racial opportunist may be worse than an actual racist, because I think they're just kind of playing with people's emotions for their own benefit. That said, there are people in this country for whom that kind of stuff coming from a leader is discouraging or dispiriting, but not disqualifying, because they got other itches to scratch. They got other problems they're trying to solve. And they look at a Democratic Party and they say, look, I see this Democratic Party. It seems to me you guys might be more interested in transgender immigrants than me. I'm a, I'm a white guy of a certain age. I'm just, now I'm not the center of everything over there. Maybe I could be the center of everything over here. And listen, right. I think we, sometimes we forget we are asking Anglos in the U.S. to do something that is difficult. I'm not saying that we should ease off. I'm not saying that what we're asking for is unjust. I'm saying it's just, but it's just hard because in human history, when have you ever seen a majority ethnic group become a minority ethnic group in their own country, quote unquote own, in their own country and like it. There's discomfort, there's there's blowback, there's a lot of crap that, that goes on. And we have to be steadfast in insisting that we're gonna have a democracy here um, and we're gonna have equal rights here. But we could sometimes do a better job of just acknowledging that people who are struggling with this might, not be monsters. I'm saying that you don't have to agree with something to understand it. And then when you understand it, you got a better chance of changing it Yeah, because you aren't coming at people like, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm good and you're bad. You suck. Screw you. You're an immoral bigot. Now vote for me and do what I say. That's not a good sales pitch to change behavior.
0: Yeah. I mean, do we have any chance of like brokering some kind of at least understanding, that we need to be at least looking at at the problem with the same vocabulary.
1: Yes, though sometimes you can't solve a problem at that level. There's a 21st century mindset and a 21st century skill set that I think almost all of us are lacking. The old mindset of competition, accomplishment, achievement, victory, and you, you need some of that. To, to be able to do well in the world. Yeah. But the complementary mindset of empathy, you get rewarded in this culture for being able to speak well, for being able to talk well, to debate well, to present well. You don't get rewarded for being able to listen well. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the underlying skill set of just being able to literally listen to another human being is radically absent if you don't have a mindset for empathy as opposed to to, to victory, which is separation mm-hmm. and domination. Separation and domination is the core problem. And so then okay. a lot of what goes on between left versus right is just they're just trying to figure out, well, they're going to agree we're separate and they just try to figure out, well, who's going to dominate? And, and as, as opposed to empathy, which is, you know, we have a lot in common and because we do, I can better understand you whether I agree with you or not. I, I think we sometimes forget how unfree white people are, how tight, how closed off, how fundamentally fearful white people are in a system like this. You have all these white people are now saying, well, I didn't know, and what can I do, and oh my God. Well, think about what it would mean to live in a country that was a slave state founded on stolen land, that they had to fight a civil war to get to apartheid which Nelson Mandela fought, mm-hmm. which is what another way of talking about segregation with Dr. King fought, mm-hmm. and that all that stuff just came to an end within the living memory of, you know, everybody listening to this practically, and to not really know that, for that not to really land it with you. Mm-hmm. How cut off from yourself, from, from reality, from life, would you have to be to have Anglo-Americans who are walking around numb to that, not connected to that, so the freedom, you know, there's a discomfort of getting connected to to a little bit more of the truth of your situation, but there's also a freedom that comes and an empowerment that comes on the other side of this for everybody, not just for people of color.
0: Everything you're saying is 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 totally on mark, except that then and then you run into Derek Chauvin, right? Then you run into an officer, you know, who's just hate. How does what you're saying help us deal with Derek Chauvin?
1: Well, you know, you've had hateful bigots and murderers throughout the history of of time. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem are the white Americans who right now are saying, I had no idea this was going on in my country. What can I do about it?
0: But don't you want to lose your mind in rage at those people? Because like, there you were with the videotape with Rodney King. I understand what people are saying. And suddenly, all sorts of things are becoming clear. But at the same time, do you do you feel angry at all? Uh,
1: kind of. Mm-hmm. Look, I, yeah, it's frustrating. And it's can I get on my high horse and, and be <laughs> exasperated? Yeah. But my only point is that people continue to say, well, how are we going to get the the equivalent of like the Hitlers of the world, like these horrific people who do horrific things. What are we going to do about them? I say, listen, I don't know about that, but I tell you what we can do about most people who are not that and are still strangling the life out of black people every day by not hiring anybody, strangling the life out of black people every day by not having any black interns, strangling the life out of black people every day by not giving loans or investing in companies. You know, So this idea that, oh my God, what are we going to do about this one guy who's like a horrible asshole, Look, hopefully we put his ass in jail. But what about everybody else? America is structured around strangling the life out of black people and not letting black people rise and then acting like black people are the threat. That is core computer code for America. Everybody is now appalled because you've now seen it acted out. And and that that look on his face, Mm. just I'm not doing anything. And if I am doing something, I'm justified in doing it. Uh, his hands are in his pocket while he's literally lynching someone. That's America too. That's corporate American CEOs and and everybody else. Oh yes. Oh, I feel so sorry for the inner cities. And knowing in the back of their mind, they're not going to hire a single black person and they have no intention of doing anything any differently. So that's, that's the real pain point. And the joy point is, I think it's indulgent. Mm. And so I think Rather than criticizing white people for being late to the party, we need to also get busy here and be clear about what this party is. Yeah, And what the party really is, is initially an equality of discomfort, which is a strange thing to ask for. But people of color and other subordinated, left out, screwed over people are almost always uncomfortable. I got to be the black guy walking into the room. And you know, I'm on TV, so some people heard of me. But in reality, most people haven't. And I walk into the room, I nobody's gonna assume that just looking at me, especially if I walk in wearing casual clothes, if I'm, if I'm wearing you know jeans and a, and, a, and a hoodie like most Americans do when they're not at work, if I walk into the room, nobody's gonna assume I've got a Yale Law degree that I've taught at Princeton, I've been a fellow at MIT, I've got uh, three bestsellers and four TV shows and work for the President of the United States. That's not gonna be the assumption. And so I'm gonna be uncomfortable being talked down to And even people who know some of that stuff, it doesn't seem to, they don't treat me the way they treat a white guy with that resume. I tell you that, even Mm -hmm. my most well-intentioned liberal friends, they don't treat me the way they would treat a white guy with the same resume. And so I got to sit there and be talked down to and condescended to and deal with all this nonsense. And I'm uncomfortable, but I got to figure out some way to deal with my discomfort and still be effective and amazing and get things done. Now the conversation turns to race. Now white people are uncomfortable. And if you say one thing that they don't like, they can't fucking handle it. You know, know, white fragility. Um, but, But what I would say is, and I mean this with all sincerity, a key to moving forward is we have to have an equality now of discomfort. White people have to learn how to listen, how to be uncomfortable. The same way when you go to the gym. You don't go to the gym to be comfortable. You go to the gym to be uncomfortable so that afterwards you can be stronger. So on the back end, the payoff is you're a lot stronger. You're a lot better able to hear truths that have been hidden from you and partner with people who you've been told subconsciously, are really not worth partnering with. And it's on all sides to come up with a way for while people's hearts are open to to consolidate on a place where we can have these conversations and then where we can partner together. That's really what's what's needed is true partnership to solve and not just to solve black people's problems. We got climate change, we got China and and Russia rising, we got robots taking everybody's jobs. I mean, we (laughs) got real problems. And, and, and in order for us to solve them, we are going to have to work together in a different way than we have been doing. we got to pass through this valley of, of equality, of discomfort to get to a place where we can have equality of partnership.
0: So the folks that are talking about, you know, abolition and defunding and all the other words that scare everybody, I guess I'm just wondering if you were, you know, in charge, how you would address this, like, total mistrust now for the police force. Mm-hmm. Help me understand what, is the change that needs to be made here?
1: Well, look, that, that's a complex question. I'll, I'll try to answer it simply. The problem with law enforcement, the fundamental problem with law enforcement in the United States is impunity, impunity, that there's no effective mechanisms to hold people accountable to anything. You can't sue cops individually because the Supreme Court just recently reaffirmed, once again, qualified immunity. You, you have a very hard time disciplining, demoting, or firing a police officer because the the unions have bubble wrapped all these bad cops in so many rules and regulations and process and bureaucratic red tape, that even a a motivated police chief has a very hard time disciplining, demoting or firing a cop. And of course, you can't put him in jail easily, because most prosecutors are very, very reluctant to bring charges against cops, because they got to work with cops every day. And so if you can't discipline, demote, fire, jail, or sue somebody, it's really hard to get their behavior to be lawful. I don't care if they're the most decent, law-abiding people in the world, but you got 800,000 cops in the U.S. You give them all guns, badges, tasers, fast cars, walkie-talkies, and say, go out there and keep the order, and you can't be disciplined, demoted, fired, sued, or jailed. Some of them are gonna act up, and they're gonna act up where they can get away with it the most, and that's with the poorest, most marginal ethnic groups, black folks, Latinos, Native Americans. So,
0: well, and beyond that, they're also going to form into systems of positive reinforcement around certain codes, mm-hmm. right? And, and so a whole system can form around these behaviors Yeah, pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. And so you can predict without having to go through any psychodrama at all exactly what will happen just with that scenario. You could have this many cops with this much money and this much firepower and this little oversight without having... A lot of problems, especially for disfavored minority ethnic group. That said, what's the solution? I'm not a huge fan, and I've never bit my tongue about it, of some of this language around abolition or defunding. I defend the ideas behind it, and I defend the people who are pushing for it because I understand what it is that they intend. But I personally never use those terms because I just think it causes more smoke than light. First of all, I don't believe in abolishing all prisons. You need some prisons, at least for the Klan and for CEOs that are poisoning the world and refuse to stop um, and war criminals and all kinds of people. And so I just, I, I don't understand why we're so attached to the term abolition. And I would say the same thing about defund the police. Nobody who has to count votes in Congress loves that slogan. Nobody who has to count votes in swing states loves that slogan. I think, frankly, if you take that label off of it, Police would probably endorse a lot of it because cops are being asked to do too many things. Let police do less. You take some of those dollars from for police overtime, put it toward real social workers, you probably have a better outcome. So I'm not a big fan of some of the rhetoric, but I defend the people who are p- pushing this stuff forward because I do think we need radically fewer people behind bars, radically fewer. And I do think that we need a, to rebalance city budgets so that police can do their job and there's still money left over for the rest of, of society to, to do its job and not, not make everything a policing issue.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, Van, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. You've been so generous.
1: Well, look, I, I, I think that we're at the beginning of, of a great awakening. Sometimes I feel moved to tears. Sometimes I'm mad. Sometimes I'm you know, a little bit tired. But fundamentally, I know that people are going to be studying 2020 Twenty years from now. This is a year just like 68, just like any other year. It's a massive year where a lot has changed and a lot of change has been made possible. And I appreciate being on the show.
0: Thanks so much, Van. Take care of yourself. To learn more about Van's amazing work in criminal justice reform, visit ReformAlliance.com. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and spread the word. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at podcast at And thanks to my All Ears team, Kathleen Hughes, Aideen Kane, Alexis Pancrazzi, Christine Schomer, Kat Vecchio, Lauren Winbush, and Sabrina Yates. Our theme music was composed by Bob Golden.